Good morning, and welcome to Chemotherapy and Immunotherapy for the Urologist and Advanced Practice Provider, presented by the AUA. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so we can continuously improve our programs. We thank you for joining us. Before we get started, I'd like to go over a few items so you know how to participate in today's event. I'd like to extend a special thank you to our course director, Costas Lawless, for planning an excellent educational course. We thank you for your dedication and commitment to urologic education. Thank you as well to our faculty for their time, talent, and expertise for today's program. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates these other activities, live virtual activities and enduring materials for a maximum of two AMA PRA category one credits. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on the AUA 2021 site immediately following the live program today. As the AUA continues to develop virtual education that meets your needs, we welcome your feedback regarding both the content and format of this activity. Please visit AUA2021.org to complete your evaluations and credit claim. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit AUA2021.org to view faculty, education council, and COI review workgroup disclosures. The American Urological Association would like to thank Amgen, Estellis, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, Merck, Pfizer, and Sanofi Genzyme for their generous support of this educational program. This activity is meant to be educational in nature and in some instances reflects the opinions of the presenters. The information does not guarantee accuracy of claims submitted. Please verify the accuracy of individual medical claims submitted and please follow individual insurer's rules. It is my pleasure to introduce our course director, Dr. Costas Lawless. Dr. Costas Lawless is a professor and vice chair of education and urology at the Sydney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University. His clinical practice is in urologic oncology, focus, focusing on minimally invasive techniques. He is a member of multidisciplinary management teams in urologic oncology and renal trans transplantation at TJUH. He serves as the Director of Robotic Surgery and the Director of Surgical S Simulation for TJU and TJUH. I will now turn the program over to Dr. Lawless. Good afternoon uh, and welcome. Uh, I'd like to thank the AUA for allowing us to present our uh, course again uh, this year in a virtual format. Uh, this is our fifth year presenting the course, and uh, we still believe it to be very relevant. Um, I would now like to introduce uh, our faculty. Um, first, uh, Dr. Anne uh, E. lazardi Calvarasi. Uh, she works with us here in Philadelphia as a nurse practitioner and director of clinical operations in the Department of Urology at Thomas Jefferson University. Uh, where she also completed her Doctor of Nursing program uh, just recently. She also serves as a member of the American Neurological Association's Advanced Practice Provider Membership in Education Councils 
and the Mid-Atlantic American Neurological Association uh, APP Committee. Um, Anne has been working with us for several years. Uh, she's just coming off a very successful just coming off a very uh, successful uh, program yesterday. Uh, so, and we're uh, thrilled to have her. Dr. Ed Trebolsi is a professor and vice chair uh, in the Department of Urology uh, of the Sydney Campbell Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. His research interests include advanced imaging for prostate and bladder cancer, including enhanced ultrasound and novel PET imaging, as well as appropriate use of post-operative radiotherapy uh, after radical prostatectomy. Uh, Ed was the first person I met uh, arriving on Jefferson's campus uh, 16 years ago. Uh, he's certainly one of the smartest people I know, knows this uh, subject matter cold, uh, and I'm just thrilled that he's uh, here to join us today. All right. It is now time to get started with our program. Our first speaker is going to be uh, Dr. Ann Calvaresi, uh, who will be speaking on prostate cancer. Good morning. Thank you for the introduction. Um, so we're going to get started with prostate cancer. Uh, we're going to start with this uh, very traditional uh, representation of prostate cancer. So starting on the left with localized prostate cancer and then going through the progression of the disease uh, where you might see a biochemical recurrence that uh, historically was treated then with androgen deprivation therapy, moving onward through the castrate resistant disease where we would then use advanced systemic therapy. And so we're gonna study this again uh, later on this morning um, and see how this uh, disease progression has changed and more, more so where we've seen changes in the therapies that we use along the progression of the disease. And so traditional hormonal ablation therapy um, is uh, what we, we've always used. So the GnRH agonists, uh, they stimulate the LH and FSH from the pituitary gland to the testis. Um, with these, you can initially have a spike or a surge in testosterone. So a lot of times you need um, an androgen block. Um, you see an, um, this is like a, a negative feedback system. So kind of like a, your home thermostat on a really warm, warm day, it'll constantly tell the cooling system to, uh, to cool, 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 and then it'll just kind of shut off. You see these uh, changes with the, the testicles as well. Um, most common agents in this class is luprolide. Um, the GnRH antagonists, uh, these directly inhibit the pituitary LH and FSH release. So you don't see that, um, that initial surge in the androgens, you don't need to use a blocking agent. Uh, most common class here is Degarelix. And with these, you actually see a very quick decline in a matter of days um, in the level of testosterone. So you would use this in your patient who you really need to drop their testosterone very quickly. The non-steroidal antiandrogens, they block the binding of the androgen to the androgen receptor. Again, this is what you would use when you're um, using the uh, agonist. Um, these can cause gynecomastia. Um, you can see them used in monotherapy or again, in combination with the GnRH treatment. Most common uh, agent here is bicalutamide. With these drugs, you should monitor the LFTs on these medications. Usually I'll order a, um, a panel about a month out 
You can also see some GI side effects uh, with uh, diarrhea and nausea. Orchiectomy used to be used a lot more commonly than it is here, especially in, not, not so much in the US any longer. Here you can see the mechanism of action. Where do these uh, drugs uh, take, take place? Um, so the GnRH uh, analogs at the level of the pituitary, uh, surgical orchiectomy, of course, is at the level of the testes, and then the antiandrogens as well. Uh, there are varying durations of hormonal therapy. Uh, with intermediate risk prostate cancer, you're using that in combination with radiation treatment. So typically you would see them, um, see patients on this for six months. Um, in patients who have high risk but still localized disease, typically they're gonna go on treatment for between 18 and 36 months while they're having their radiation treatment. And then in biochemically uh, uh, recurrent and metastatic disease, you can see intermittent or continuous durations. This slide is probably one of my favorite slides in, in at least in the prostate cancer portion of this, of this talk. And this is what I have in my mind when I'm starting someone on androgen deprivation therapy. Um, and I kind of go around clockwise or counterclockwise, what have you, um, and kind of hit on all of these because most patients are gonna have some, if not all of the side effects that are listed here. And we're gonna go into some detail on, on these as we move forward. I think that it's really important as um, nurse practitioners and physician assistants that we take a lot of time in talking with patients who are starting on this treatment to hopefully either minimize or stop the side effects that are associated with ADT. Of course, you're not ever going to stop them, but as you, if you can do some quality of life um, modifications um, to minimize the side effects, that's hugely beneficial to the patient. So we worry about cognitive decline. Typically, I think this is more common in patients um, who are on longer duration therapy, but to minimize the cognitive decline, you want to encourage physical activity. Um, so making sure that they're getting some type of cardiovascular exercise and then also some resistance training. Um, this also helps with their stability. So you worry about patients falling and fractures and the, and the decreased bone health while they're on these agents. If you're, if you're having them be more physically active, then they're, they're gonna have uh, fewer falls, fewer fractures as a result. Um, of course, there's altered body composition, metabolic syndrome and fatigue with these agents. So you wanna make sure that they're seeing their PCP um, on a regular basis and also a cardiologist if you can get, if you can get them seeing one of uh, a cardiologist as well. They're gonna need um, pretty close follow-up for their labs, including their cholesterol panel, glucose, A1C. Again, going back to that daily exercise with aerobic and strength training, recommending a healthy, well-balanced diet. I usually refer them to the um, American Cancer Society website or the American Heart Association. They have pretty loose dietary guidelines, but also very helpful guidelines. So if you can go back to the, um, the food pyramid that we used to use, some guidelines similar to that. So nothing super strict, but something to help them along the way. You could also consider a, nutri a nutrition referral if they're really not sure of what to eat and what not to eat. Um, with, the, uh, with these patients also, we should uh, use a routine uh, sleep-wake cycle. So going to bed at roughly the same time, waking up at roughly the same time and decreasing stimulants before bedtime. So caffeine, um, not taking their laptop to bed, things like that. Um, we touched upon this briefly already, but uh, there is increased cardiovascular morbidity and arterial stiffness. So if, uh, if uh, they're smokers, try to get them to stop or at least decrease it. 
um, encourage management again by a cardiologist. And here's, uh, as I did mention already, the American Heart Association for the dietary guidelines. What I also recommend to patients is to shop on the perimeter of the supermarket. So staying away from those aisles where all the processed foods are or where they find things in packages. So I tell them if they're really not sure, don't buy things in packages, buy the freshest things that they can find. Um, of course, decreasing sodium and alcohol intake is important as well. So these patients are definitely at an increased likelihood for emotional ability and depressed, uh, depressed mood. Um, so if you can, you can start managing their uh, uh, side effects initially, that will help with the um, depression and, and mood changes as well. Some patients need some antidepressants, some patients need individual counseling. Couples counseling, I think, is um, strongly indicated in this patient population because one of the biggest factors is the erectile dysfunction and the um, decreased um, libido. And so couples counseling, I think, is really, really important. There are support groups available uh, to a lot of prostate cancer patients. Um, and then again, going back to that ED, make sure you can treat it if the patient and or their partner are willing. Hot flashes. This is a very difficult side effect to manage. Um, a lot of the agents that we have available to us for treatment of hot flashes come with their own sets of side effects. Um, you can consider acupuncture, which has much fewer side effects. Um, anecdotally, vitamin B6 supplementation can be really helpful. Um, and then you know we can think about uh, SSRIs or um, magistral acetate. I briefly mentioned this earlier, but we worry about bone health in these patients. So I always say it's kind of like when women go through menopause, we see changes in the bone density. So we see decreased bone density, decreased bone health in the presence of androgen deprivation therapy. At the very minimum, patients should be on vitamin D and calcium supplementation. You can see the doses are listed here. You want to you seriously consider a DEXA scan, and I think this is underutilized in this patient population. I know myself, I, I remind myself, I should probably get a baseline DEXA on more patients than we do. Um, and then that can be assessed throughout the long-term androgen deprivation therapy um, uh, administration. In patients who are high risk, that includes the elderly, the uh, smokers or um, alcohol users, the thin or frail patients um, want to consider an anti-reabsorptive agent like denosumab or zoledronic acid. These are really, really strong medications. Um, so patients who are going on them should have a thorough evaluation prior to starting therapy. While the risk is low, there is a risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw. So for patients who need any dental work, work that should be done ahead of time, um, or at the minimum, it should, they should be cleared by their dentist. Um, uses, again, these are to prevent or treat osteoporosis for patients on androgen deprivation therapy, and it's to prevent and delay the SREs, the skeletal-related skeletal events, um, including uh, pathologic fractures. Zoledronic acid is an IV uh, bisphosphonate. It inhibits the bone osteoclasts, um, and the, uh, this agent's approved for excuse me, osteoporosis prevention and treatment. Um, so you do need the documentation of that diagnosis. It's given as a five milligram IV dose once annually. And then it's also approved for bone mets, uh, and that's given every three to four weeks. Patients with renal impairment need to be monitored very closely, uh, so their renal function should be checked uh, pretty routine intervals. The oral bisphosphonates are used uh, much less commonly they have than they have been in the past. Denosumab, um, this promotes osteoclast and bone resorption. Um, it minimizes and treats the cancer therapy-induced osteoporosis and minimizes the skeletal-related events and development of bone mats. 
These patients, the calcium levels need to be uh, watched very closely. You can see uh, hypocalcemia, uh, which of course can be life-threatening. Dosage for uh, patients with existing bone mets, uh, you see them uh, getting treatment every four weeks. And then for osteoporosis, they usually get an injection every six months. Here you can see the list of agents that we have um, and the list of studies that have, have occurred in more recent years. So we do have a lot of agents that are available to us for patients with metastatic castrate sensitive disease. The ARCHES trial uh, was a randomized phase three study of androgen deprivation therapy with enzalutamide or placebo in men with metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. So we saw a little over 1,100 men with metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer who randomized to ADT plus ENZA or ADT plus placebo, uh, looking at improved overall survival and radiographic progression-free survival. And you can see that that primary endpoint was met. Uh, 11, a, few, a little over 1,100 men with metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer were randomized additionally uh, to uh, ADT plus ENZA versus ADT plus um, uh, anti-androgen. And overall survival at three years was 80% versus 72%. So again, improved uh, PSA progression-free survival and clinical progression-free survival. The TITAN trial looked at a, a little over 1,000 men with metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. Again, randomized to ADT plus apalutamide or ADT plus placebo. You can see they've always, they're always on ADT. It's kind of a standard, um, or it is a standard, I should say. Co-primary endpoints looked at improved overall survival and radiographic progression-free survival. Again, these endpoints were met. So you can see um, the, the first slide that I showed much earlier in the disease state, we're using these agents, whereas historically we were waiting for advanced disease in order to incorporate some of these treatments. So all these agents here on the right have been approved for earlier use in the disease progression. In patients with non-metastatic castrate-resistant uh, prostate cancer, so that's a rising PSA in a castrate environment. So their testosterone is all the way down, um, but uh, their, their PSA is rising and their imaging, including conventional imaging, so usually a CT abdomen and pelvis and a bone scan or an MRI in place of the CT are negative. So we're seeing no metastatic disease on these um, conventional imaging studies. So the NCCM guidelines include uh, close observation plus ADT. Uh, however, there is category one evidence supporting apalutamide, enzalutamide, or darolutamide in addition to the ADT. Uh, in these patients, you can also consider second or third line hormonal manipulation, um, as well as glutamide or nilutamide and ketoconazole. So based upon the results from uh, Spartan and PROSPER trials, uh, we, we saw demonstrated um, metastasis-free survival in men on apalutamide as, and in PROSPER demonstrated metastasis-free survival in men with ENZA. This was the first time this endpoint was used, huge. Um, so apalutamide again approved for non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. This is a non-steroidal antiandrogen. It binds directly uh, to the ligand binding domain of the androgen receptor and prevents the androgen receptor translocation, DNA binding androgen receptor mediated transcription. Um, you can see hypothyroidism, uh, excuse me, hypothyroidism in these patients, as well as a skin rash. These patients are at an increased risk for fracture. Um, again, we want to make sure that we're minimizing the fracture, and by maintaining their stability, you're going to decrease falls, decrease fractures in turn. Um, skin rash 
in the patients who I have seen on apalutamide, I have seen skin rash in a pretty good number of them. However, it's usually um, really well managed with topical um, uh, uh, topical corticosteroids or um, even a little Benadryl um, is, is not a bad idea. Uh, so darolutamide, uh, next generation androgen receptor in inhibitors. Uh, it's structurally distinct from apalutamide and enzalutamide, and it's characterized by low blood-brain barrier penetration. So with that, you can see less CNS toxicity and improved tolerability. So the Aramis uh, trial looked uh, at randomization two to one. So patients on 1200 milligrams of darolutamide plus ADT versus placebo plus ADT with the final uh, uh, primary analysis at metastasis-free survival um, and final analysis at overall survival. And you can see those endpoints were met. So 2020 NCSAN guidelines for metastatic castrate resistant disease. Again, maintain that castrate level of testosterone. That's hugely important. Um, you wanna make sure that patients who are on androgen deprivation therapy are um, compliant. So consider a longer duration of luprolide in patients who are non-compliant or who have to travel a far distance. Again, consider those bone anti-resorptive therapies. Uh, in the patients who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, you could consider a sublucal cell T. So this is an immunotherapy approved for prostate cancer. It's approved for patients with non-visceral or um, non-visceral asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic uh, M1 disease. Uh, you can, uh, palliative radiation therapy should be used along with it for symptomatic bone metastases. Um, T cells are harvested, they're cultured and stimulated, reinfused IV three days later. This is given as three cycles, two weeks apart for six weeks total. Um, the downfall with this is that it doesn't really decrease the PSA or the radiographic change. So it's really difficult to know when it's working, which can be uh, upsetting to the patient and even the provider. Uh, again, outcomes. Um, so the difference here is, is somewhat minimal. Going back to our list of agents. Um, so these are all the FDA approvals for metastatic castrate resistant disease. And just since 2010, you can see how many we have. So when I'm counseling patients who are being started on a treatment early in the disease process, I always tell them we have an arsenal of agents that we can use. So once one starts to fail, we usually have something else that we can use. Docetaxel was the first chemotherapeutic agent uh, that was approved for, uh, in 2004. Um, this was approved, uh, I'm sorry, and then the AR targeted therapies were next approved with the abiraterone, uh, with prednisone, and then the enzalutamide. Um, this was first approved post-chemo and then also as pre-chemotherapeutic agents. Abiraterone approved for metastatic castrate resistant disease with or without visceral mets, both pre and post chemotherapy. So if they had had docetaxel or not. Um, so it's an androgen biosynthesis inhibitor, excuse me, inhibitor. It must be given with daily prednisone, I'm sorry, twice daily prednisone. Uh, monitor these patients, especially uh, those patients who are on uh, rifampin, um, uh, the antifungals, uh, HIV meds, seizure meds. The follow-up for these patients is, uh, Pretty close uh, follow-up, so monitor their LFTs, their electrolytes, their cardiovascular health, and don't be afraid to, like I said, send them back to their um, cardiologist. 
for patients with hepatic impairment, um, no adjust, uh, mild hepatic impairment, no adjustment is uh, recommended. However, with moderate liver dysfunction, you can dose reduce, and it is contraindication in patients with severe liver dysfunction. This is the follow-up schedule. Again, it's pretty close, careful follow-up. Again, this is actually a really great place for uh, nurse practitioners and excuse me, physician assistants to monitor these patients. We typically have a little bit more time and we're able to follow up on the labs for them. Enzalutamide was approved for metastatic castrate resistant disease with or without visceral METs. Again, both uh, pre and post chemotherapeutic agents, uh, our patients were able to uh, be enrolled. Uh, competitively binds the androgens and prevents the translocation of the androgen receptor. The dosage is 160 milligrams daily, uh, does not require a prednisone uh, administration as well. This is also a contraindication in contraindicated in patients with severe hepatic impairment. Also caution in patients with seizure disorder, head injury, or stroke. And then multiple drug interactions uh, are present with this medication as well. Avoid use with uh, patients who are on some of the agents that are listed here. Uh, and patients who are on warfarin or immunosuppressants need to be monitored a little bit more closely. You can see here, so it's a balancing act, deciding when to administer abiraterone or enzalotamide um, and when, when to start patients on these agents. Chemotherapy and advanced prostate cancer. Uh, cytotoxic chemo was long felt inadequate for prostate cancer. Um, so, uh, you know, some of the agents were approved for palliative benefit only. And like we mentioned earlier, docetaxel was the first chemo to show survival benefit in prostate cancer. Uh, and its indication was for met metastatic disease patients who were failing other therapies. Cabazitaxel was approved in 2010 for metastatic castrate resistant disease who were failing docetaxel, so a second line therapy. The radioisotopes are used for patients with bone mets. Uh, the most common uh, that we see is radium-223 that shows the most uh, benefit. Uh, these are agents target uh, new bone growth in and around the metastases. Uh, radium-223 demonstrated both symptomatic improvement and survival benefit. Uh, so patients could receive this uh, post-chemo and in the chemo ineligible space. It's given as six monthly injections total. So going back to those NCCN guidelines for metastatic castrate resistant disease, uh, so the second line treatments include uh, for post-visceral mets, the docetaxel with prednisone, Enza, abiraterone, uh, with prednisone, of course, alternative chemotherapies, cabazitoxel, pembrolizumab, and clinical trials. So where are we going? Uh, you know, combination therapy is certainly a question uh, in which combinations should we use? Um, and then the correct sequencing, which agent should we give first? Other agents, of course, are the PARP inhibitors, the new antiandrogens um, targeting the splice variants, the radioisotope therapy. And then why do the CTLA-4 and PD-1 monotherapy uh, work? I'm sorry, why don't they work in metastatic disease patients? Um, because we're talking about cold versus hot tumors. T cells are excluded from most prostate cancers. So they don't typically respond well to the immunotherapy agents like some other uh, cancer, cancers do. So you can see here a list of a lot of the um, cancers that we see um, when we're seeing patients and prostate cancers are, they're just not responsive or not typically responsive. So some of the novel directions, vaccines plus PD-1, uh, combination checkpoint inhibitors, targeted therapy plus PD-1, cytokines, and others, of course, that we haven't even examined here today. 
Genetics, um, of course, is playing a bigger and bigger and bigger role um, in patients with prostate cancer. And so the, um, the role of genetic testing for inherited uh, prostate cancer risk uh, was evaluated uh, in the Philadelphia Prostate Cancer Consensus Conference in both 2015 and 17. Um, and it, uh, they evaluated when should we do uh, genetic testing. So agreement was moderate to test all men who presented with metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer, regardless of family history. We've really only just touched upon the germline mutations that are present in patients with uh, prostate cancer, especially with metastatic prostate cancer. Um, but we do know, especially BRCA2 uh, is present in a large portion of these uh, patients. And more so we know that germline mutations are present in nearly 12% of patients with metastatic disease for, and 4.6% uh, with localized disease. The take-home points from this consensus were that, you know, prostate cancer adapts in the castrate microenvironment. Germline, germline mutations, again, are present in nearly 12% of metastatic disease patients, and advanced, advanced prostate cancer harbors clinically actionable molecular alterations. So what can we do as a, uh, APNs, so NPs, PAs? Again, routine screening, labs and scans, um, making sure patients are compliant, um, administering the treatments, managing the toxicities of the treatments and making sure they're sticking to their oncologic follow-up. Now we're moving on into bladder cancer. Um, so I'm gonna turn this over to Dr. Trabolsi. Thanks, Anne. to remember how to, there we go, okay. So thanks Anne and Costas um, for allowing me to be a part of this course and thank you to AUA for uh, continuing to support our uh, our course, uh, as Costas mentioned, this is the fifth year we've given this. Uh, so I'll transition now to bladder cancer. And here's a schema of some of the topics that I'll be talking about. As we all know, bladder cancer does have a significant burden in the US um, adult population. Um, it's got both a high incidence and a high prevalence. So more than 83,000 new cases per year in the US, uh, almost 20,000 deaths. Uh, it's more common in men and it represents the fourth most common malignancy amongst American men. And as I mentioned, the prevalence is also very high. So there's lots of men that are, or excuse me, patients that are living with their cancer because the majority of them at presentation are superficial. So the estimate of about tenfold higher uh, prevalence than the incidence. So hundreds of thousands of patients in the US with bladder cancer. Tends to be a disease of the older uh, average age of 68. And it does translate unfortunately to nearly 10,000 radical surgeries every year. When we talk about um, urothelial cancer or bladder cancer, uh, the vast majority of bladder cancers are urothelial cancers. Um, we need to define what specific risk uh, the patients are in. 
so we categorize patients as either non-muscle invasive or muscle invasive. And then the non-muscle invasive, we categorize as low or high risk. So low risk patients um, are usually papillary tumors, non-invasive tumors, um, and no evidence of invasion. Uh, the high risk non-invasive tumors are the ones that have either superficial invasion, which is high grade T1, or carcinoma in situ. And then the muscle invasive patients, those are the highest risk for metastasis and demise from bladder cancer. So focusing specifically on the superficial or the non-muscle invasive bladder patients, um, we use different risk stratification schemas. The AUA has an excellent one. Uh, this is on the AUA uh, website. Um, and so we look at, uh, as I mentioned, the size of the tumor, the degree of invasion, the uh, unifocal or multifocality, recurrence patterns, um, and the presence or absence of carcinoma in situ to categorize uh, patients into low, intermediate, or high risk. Uh, the high risk patients are uh, the ones that are high grade and recurrent or high grade and superficially invasive. Uh, the variant histologies such as nested variant, um, which is becoming uh, uh, more prominent or small cell neuroendocrine tumors. Um, and then uh, carcinoma in situ by definition is a high risk patient. This is a very complicated uh, schema but it does show uh, the important finding that there are fairly well-defined algorithms based on the, the risk profile. So low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk. Uh, this is a, a consensus uh, algorithm from the AUA and the SUO. Um, it's complicated, but it's easy to follow. Um, and so as you're following patients, and when I see patients coming in, I'll have a office Cisto day. I'll usually have the NCCN and AUA guidelines open on my computer, see where they fit and make sure I'm following the guidelines. A mainstay of therapy for superficial or non-muscle invasive disease are intravesical therapy. Um, uh, we've been using uh, intravesical therapy for almost 50 years, um, um, primarily with uh, immunotherapy and then also uh, more recently with chemotherapy. Uh, there's certainly a strong evidence supporting perioperative chemotherapy. Uh, so the idea of giving an intravesical chemo treatment right after a, a resection uh, in the PACU or in the, uh, in the uh, recovery room uh, for about a 45 minutes to 60 minutes dwell time. Uh, and that definitely uh, has been shown to decrease the recurrence rate. The idea is that the act of us biopsying patients, they liberate uh, tumor cells that have the chance to sort of implant and land in other areas of the bladder and turn into tumors later. So post-operative chemo theoretically, hopefully would sort of sterilize the urine and prevent that. Uh, in the office setting, uh, beyond the post-op setting is where we start thinking about BCG. Uh, and that's the, uh, um, primary immune therapy that's been used in bladder cancer uh, for, like I said, almost 50 years. Uh, it's a nonspecific immune adjuvant. Uh, it's a um, 
close relative to the tuberculosis uh, uh, bacterium. Um, I'm not sure who ever dreamed of putting this in people's bladder, but it's really sort of the model initial form of immune therapy for uh, oncology. And it remains the gold standard. It reduces both the two aspects that we wanna reduce for bladder cancer, superficial bladder cancer, both the risk of recurrence, and more importantly, arguably the risk of progression. Uh, it does have some symptoms, um, usually mild in terms of irritative avoiding symptoms. Very rarely you can get uh, systemic BCG infection. And so that's something that we counsel patients about. And there also is strong evidence that uh, beyond the induction uh, that giving maintenance BCG to periodically re-stimulate the immune system uh, enhances the benefit. How does it work? It's probably a combination of different pathways. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone knows exactly how it works. It's a combination of uh, innate immunity and um, cancer destruction, adaptive immunity. Um, but basically what I tell my patients is it sort of revs up the immune system, kind of like a, a forest fire to get rid of the bacteria and it gets rid of any cancer cells in its wake. Um, the typical sort of schedule is uh, a six week induction. Uh, we do try to um, make sure as best we can that the patient can hold it in their bladder for two hours. So if the patient is a big coffee drinker um, or takes diuretics, we might counsel them to avoid it or delay their uh, diuretics till after the treatment. Um, we do counsel them on uh, uh, the importance of uh, sterilizing the urine with uh, bleach and to avoid barrier contraceptives if they're sexually active. Um, the maintenance schedule is usually uh, a abbreviated course, uh, three weeks instead of six weeks. You also can reduce the dose, especially if patients that don't tolerate it well, or in our current BCG shortage environment, we've been forced to use redu reduced doses to sort of make more uh, drug available for a larger group of patients. How much does the reduced dose and the maintenance impact things? When you look at a meta-analysis, um, there does seem to be concerns that reduced dose does lower the efficacy, but does not eliminate the efficacy. Uh, but it's one of the realities, unfortunately, of our current environment of uh, BCG shortage. And uh, the BCG shortage, unfortunately, has been going on now for uh, several years uh, to the point where AUA was very proactive and came out with a, uh, a consensus document um, and different strategies to sort of ration BCG. The first one is that uh, BCG should not use for patients that are in the low risk category. Uh, those patients probably could be observed or maybe uh, would benefit from uh, the intravesical chemotherapy. Um, if uh, patients, uh, have the very highest risk features, we should try to prioritize them to full strength BCG. But again, if it's not available, reduced dose at half or one third dose uh, can be used. Um, and then the maintenance schedule has also been relaxed in the face of uh, BCG shortage, uh, again, to try to make the drug available. The important thing is though, that certainly on the high risk end of the spectrum, in, we might wanna be more aggressive with surgery if we're really concerned about their ability 
to receive BCG because of supply issues. The definition of failure of BCG has also been somewhat confusing and there's been uh, a relatively recent attempt uh, or definition schema to try to categorize patients that have recurrence after BCG. So the first thing that um, the consensus group uh, identified is that what adequate BCG entails, to, you, know, you need to know how much BCG they've received to decide if they're really failing it. And so the consensus schema of definition of adequate BCG is uh, either two full induction BCG courses, six weeks each, or induction plus maintenance. So at least five out of six induction and two out of three maintenance. So if they haven't even received that much BCG, it's really probably inappropriate to call them a failure. And then we've come up with four different categories based on the pattern of recurrence. Um, the overarching term is BCG refractory, which we used to use. Uh, we're trying to retire that and really categorize patients as either BCG relapsing, BCG intolerant, or BCG unresponsive. So relapsing patients are the ones that did achieve a disease-free state. So they had cystoscopy and or biopsy that was negative and then recurred six months or later after their BCG. The intolerant is those patients that were unable to complete BCG because of side effects. And then BCG unresponsive combines the refractory and the relapsing uh, either six or 12 months based on whether they had papillary disease or, 12, uh, or CIS. The importance of these diagrams or these definitions are that these are the definitions that FDA is looking at when uh, evaluating novel agents for approval. So this has become a fairly common template uh, that different uh, novel agents are being investigated on in terms of defining if they're unresponsive and what the response rates will be. Looking at salvage uh, options for those that failed BCG, certainly uh, repeating the BCG uh, makes sense, especially if they've had a disease-free interval. So that would be more like the BCG relapsing. Um, surgery or chemoradiation for the invasive tumors, and then intravesical cytotoxic chemotherapy has really become the, the uh, most common salvage agent outside of a clinical trial. Valrubicin was approved uh, several years ago, specifically for refractory carcinoma in situ. Uh, the response rates are not great, about 16%. Gemcitabine with or without docetaxel has become our a default for um, uh, chemotherapy, second line intravesical therapy. When you look at the post-op, there was a recent uh, study looking at gemcitabine versus saline, a sham injection after uh, resection. Um, and looking at the uh, gemcitabine group versus the saline group and the recurrence rates. And the recurrence rates were significantly reduced in the patients that um, uh, received post-operative gemcitabine. So this has been a little slower on the uptake, especially amongst community urologists, uh, probably because of research constraints, but we generally try advocate to try to um, consider post-operative uh, chemotherapy. Nowadays, usually mostly with gemcitabine, 
uh, for patients with papillary disease that appear to be fully resected. And when you looked at the, uh, the four-year uh, 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 recurrence rates uh, with low-grade non-muscle invasive urethelial cancer, uh, there was a significant reduction of recurrence. Immune checkpoint inhibition, we're gonna talk about this quite a bit in the metastatic population, but it also has uh, a relatively new role in the superficial, the high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patient, specifically pembrolizumab, which is an anti-PD-1 antibody. This was approved in January, 2020 for high-risk BCG unresponsive, non-muscle invasive disease uh, of carcinoma in situ with or without papillary disease. This was based on the keynote trial of 148 patients showing a complete response rate of 41%, which is higher than historical controls with a fairable, fairly durable uh, duration of response of greater than a year. Switching gears a little bit to muscle invasive disease. This is a schematic of uh, the lining of the bladder. And so the inner urethelium is the uh, most superficial lining. This is where the tumors start. If it has the biological ability to grow through the lamina propria and hit the red muscle wall of the bladder, those patients uh, have a significant uh, detriment to survival. These patients need very aggressive therapy. So this is clinical stage two or stage three, diagnosed on a transurethral resection. Um, these patients will be staged uh, for their abdomen, chest, and uh, occasionally a bone scan, uh, especially if they're having any uh, bone pain or symptoms. Uh, these patients uh, generally will require very aggressive therapy, either cystectomy, uh, especially those patients that are healthy and are able to undergo a major surgical procedure or in chemo radiation for those are, that are not surgical candidates. So the role of neoadjuvant therapy for bladder cancer uh, became very clear in the early 2000s. This seminal New England Journal article um, uh, by Dr. Grossman investigating neoadjuvant chemotherapy plus cystectomy compared with cystectomy alone. This looked at three doses of standard MVAC uh, followed by cystectomy versus cystectomy alone. And uh, this uh, standard MVAC uh, in the early 2000s uh, was a fairly toxic regimen. Uh, nowadays, we've replaced it with accelerated MVAC or dose-dense MVAC and also use growth factor support. It's much more tolerable. But even with that, uh, there showed a significant survival benefit in patients that got neoadjuvant chemotherapy compared to cystectomy alone. Most importantly, um, when you looked at subgroup analysis, um, the uh, patients that achieved a complete pathologic response was significantly higher in the patients that had uh, preoperative MVAC, 38% uh, versus 15%. This sort of shows that an aggressive TUR can uh, completely eliminate visible tumor from the bladder alone. Um, it's important though, because this is also an important endpoint uh, that we're looking at for future uh, neoadjuvant trials, because it seemed like the patients that achieved the pathologic T0 appeared to get the most benefit in terms of overall survival. So there's been a host of uh, similar trials looking at neoadjuvant cisplatin-based um, 
uh, chemotherapy, uh, neoadjuvant strategies for invasive bladder cancer, um, cisplatin, doxorubicin, uh, MVAC. Um, and in general, they're all fairly consistent showing uh, improved survival in patients that get preoperative chemotherapy. Uh, we were uh, participants with uh, Dr. Plimack and Fox Chase in a neoadjuvant phase two trial of dostens MVAC um, followed by cystectomy. And um, this uh, was a similar schema to the old Grossman uh, SWOG protocol with uh, post-operative dostens MVAC three cycles uh, followed by uh, uh, repeat staging, and then uh, radical cystectomy. Um, the dostens MVAC um, is a very accelerated schedule. The cycle's only, only two weeks. So the time to surgery was only about 10 weeks, which is very accelerated, six weeks of chemo, and then usually we gave them three or four weeks uh, to recover. And um, uh, uh, similar sort of complete pathologic response rate of 38%. Another endpoint that uh, is commonly evaluated in clinical trials is the uh, pathologic response rate of T1 or less. So no residual muscle invasive disease. And this was a, a significant, almost half the patients had that benefit. 65, almost two thirds, 65% of patients were clinically downstaged compared to their ups upfront clinical stage. So the question we always get, and this is a, a slide that I borrowed from Jeannie Hoffman-Sensitz, uh, who used to be with us here at Jefferson. Um, you know, when, when do we give chemo? And so one of the concerns uh, with, ad, with neoadjuvant is that if they're one of the uh, tumors that doesn't respond, we're automatically delaying their potentially curative surgery. Why not use uh, their final surgical pathology to guide treatment. But as, as uh, the medical oncologists have, have observed, uh, the patients that get neoadjuvant chemotherapy and then go to surgery uh, definitely appear to do better in terms of quality life performance status than the patients that have upfront cystectomy, get a bad pathology, and then they're trying to give chemo. And there's a significantly higher risk or concern that the patients that potentially would benefit from it chemo postoperatively never get chemo because of delays in treatment uh, related to surgery. So the timing really does seem to matter. Um, and this, this is evidenced here um, and that we adjuvant chemotherapy has the potential benefit that we um, wouldn't necessarily overtreat patients. Uh, patients may not need it, um, but upwards of 30% of them will not get chemo uh, and there really hasn't been randomized clinical trials that show the same level of evidence for adjuvant therapy that the new adjuvant trials do. This was one trial um, from Europe looking at uh, adjuvant chemotherapy or uh, for bad pathology, so T3, T4, node positive, um, or deferred six cycles of chemotherapy if and when they relapsed. It didn't accrue very well and the trial closed early. Um, and um, looking at um, 
these uh, patients that actually went on trial, it did appear that the adjuvant patients did better than patients who'd received treatment uh, at the first uh, determination metastasis. So there is a role for adjuvant chemotherapy uh, and should be considered in the patients that get, don't get upfront chemotherapy, but have an adverse pathology after cystectomy. And here you can see um, a ASCO clinical practice guideline um, looking at invasive and metastatic bladder cancer. I highlighted uh, uh, takeaway points two and eight. So neoadjuvant chemotherapy is recommended uh, and it should be cisplatin-based chemotherapy, not carboplatin. And then um, for first-line therapy of metastatic disease, again, cisplatin-based chemotherapy should be considered. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, the pathologic downstaging definitely appears to show, those patients appear to show the most benefit. Uh, and this has been confirmed on multiple different trials. So uh, uh, the patients that uh, have ideally uh, T0, N0, but less than T2 as well, appear to get the most bang for the buck. So what about preoperative immune checkpoint inhibitors? Uh, there have been trials looking at uh, preoperative pembrolizumab. Uh, this was the PURE study. And this was um, patients that are cystectomy candidates uh, that um, have a good GFR um, and they were randomized. This is a non-randomized trial, excuse me. Uh, again, got three uh, cycles of pembrolizumab and then uh, cystectomy. Uh, the majority of them were cisplatin eligible. And you could see a pathologic complete response rate in these patients, almost identical to what we see with cisplatin combination chemotherapy, new adjuvant therapy of almost 40%. So we, uh, our clinical guideline, our clinical practice, uh, we use a new adjuvant uh, dose-dense MVAC or uh, gemcitabine cisplatin prior to cystectomy uh, for patients that can get cisplatin-based chemotherapy. Uh, we have used neoadjuvant uh, pembrolizumab as well, much more selectively. Patients that potentially are bulkier, uh, that we're worried more even if they don't have metastatic disease. Um, and uh, this is an open area of research. Transitioning now to the metastatic population, this is where immunotherapy has become so vital. Um, and this frankly is very confusing, but if you look at the interaction between the regulatory T cells and the tumors um, and this PD uh, receptor, PD uh, stands for program death. It's very dramatic. Uh, and the typical you know, sort of baseline is that if PD binds to the PD ligand, which is present on the tumor cell, that's actually inhibitory on the T cell and it downregulates T cell activity. So if you can block that interaction, it actually will sort of block the inhibitory effect on the T cell. So the very simplistic way of thinking about this is we have the gas and the brake. And if we can let off the brake and step on the gas by enhancing the cytotoxic T cell activity and minimizing the 
uh, T cell down regulatory or in inhibitory response, we get enhanced immune uh, recognition of these tumor cells and enhanced um, um, immune attack on these tumor cells to get rid of them. So when we have uh, T cells and androgen presenting cells, there's lots of different targets for which antibodies have been delivered, again, to try to step off the brake and step on the gas. So if we look at NCCN guidelines for first-line therapy for locally advanced or metastatic urothelial carcinoma, as I mentioned, cytotoxic chemotherapy remains the preferred first-line regimen, uh, all of which would include cisplatin-based chemotherapy, not carboplatin, so either MVAC or gemcitabine cisplatin. A newer sort of um, uh, approval has been alvelumab, which is one of the uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. There, uh, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but maintenance therapy with immune checkpoint inhibitors after cisplatin-based chemotherapy does approve, uh, appear to uh, improve survival. For the patients that are cisplatin ineligible, we have a variety of different options. Um, gemcitabine plus carboplatin, uh, pembrolizumab. Atezolizumab is listed here, but interestingly, after this February NCCM guideline, um, the uh, atezolizumab confirmatory study came back uh, in non-significant. And so atezolizumab has been withdrawn uh, for first-line cisplatin ineligible uh, in this guideline. So who is cisplatin ineligible? This is another sort of murky uh, combination of patients. Uh, performance status, creatinine clearance, hearing loss, neuropathy, and heart failure are the, are the big ones that go into the mix in terms of defining a patient cisplatin eligible or ineligible. And as you may imagine from a large, from an older patient population, upwards of 50% of patients are not eligible for cisplatin. So here's a really, uh, I think, telling slide of the landscape of urothelial carcinoma. Cisplatin was approved in the late 70s. And then we have this huge wasteland, no new agents approved until gemcitabine got approved in 2008. And now recently we've had a flurry of new agents approved in the metastatic urothelial carcinoma uh, patient population. So right now, as terrible a disease as bladder cancer is, this is a really exciting time for uh, advanced bladder cancer, where we went 20 years, 30 years with two drugs approved, and now we have all of these different drugs approved with more on the horizon. So what are the sort of the current unmet needs? Certainly in the platinum eligible patients, we do have fairly good treatments, not perfect, but we do have agents. The platinum and eligible patients though, really do not have as much uh, options for them. This is an area of unmet need. When we look at the sort of guideline-based management of metastatic disease, the first sort of fork in the road is, are they eligible for cisplatin or not? And unfortunately, patients that are not chemo eligible this is when we're thinking about hospice or best supportive care or clinical trials, or perhaps the immune checkpoint inhibitors. 
for the chemo and chemo eligible, again, gemcitabine, cisplatin, or MVAC with alvelumab maintenance is now the current standard of care. And this is the, the Javelin trial, uh, relatively new, newly reported, uh, showing the benefit of maintenance therapy with checkpoint inhibition. So these patients uh, that had uh, some response uh, in the metastatic population, either a CRPR, stable disease with first line uh, cisplatin-based uh, gemcitabine, uh, cisplatin or gemcarbo, or the unresectable locally advanced uh, patients, they were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to evelumab or a best supportive care alone. And it, this did show a survival benefit with the maintenance of uh, PD-L1, uh, a significant survival benefit. So this has now become the, the new standard uh, for metastatic disease. Looking at the NCCN guidelines for second line therapy, second line, the preferred regimen would be pembrolizumab. Uh, you can look at second line chemo agents. Uh, this is where we get into other immune checkpoint inhibitors and then other agents such as ertafitinib or infortimab. And again, another schematic uh, second line therapy. After chemotherapy, we would look at their FGFR mutation status. This could guide whether ertafitinib, which I'll talk about later, newly approved in the FGFR positive population, FGFR negative after chemo, again, pembrolizumab or the different immune checkpoint inhibitors is the standard of care. If they're failing the, the immune checkpoint inhibitors, if they've never received chemo, it's not unreasonable to try chemo on that. Uh, if they're um, ineligible, we can think about second line uh, chemotherapy or other agents or clinical trials. We can see that there's been several different trials looking at second line post-platinum. Uh, and this is the trial that I mentioned, uh, the Invigor, uh, atezolizumab, and also Dervalumab. The, the, third, the, um, the phase two showed benefit and led to FDA approval, but the confirmatory phase three did not, and these were withdrawn. So Infortimab and Ertafitinib, are um, preferred agents based on uh, uh, second or third line or greater. Um, and then there's been a new addition to this uh, last month. I'm not gonna try to pronounce this, um, but this is an agent uh, that is currently available for breast cancer patients. It's an antibody drug conjugate targeting uh, trophoblast cell surface antigen 2 or trope 2. This was approved uh, on the basis of the trophy U01 phase 2 trial, heavily pretreated patients failing chemo and checkpoint inhibition, showing an overall response rate of 27%. And even in this heavily pretreated patient population, a complete response rate of 5%. So how are we doing in the advanced urothelial carcinoma population? We're not doing so well. There are agents, we've talked about all these different agents. When we look, if we have 100% of patients with newly diagnosed metastatic disease, only about half of them receive standard first-line therapy, only 17% receive second-line therapy. So there's lots of areas of unmet need and areas for improvement. Getting, uh, speaking specifically for sort of 
heavily treated patients. This is where we get into infortimab, ertafitinib, and the newer agents. Um, you can see here a complicated schematic of different inhibitors in red and stimulators in green. These are all drug targets uh, with active investigation. Okay, let me get back here. So um, all of these different trials in progress, looking at combinations of PDL1 with chemotherapy uh, in the new adjuvant and metastatic population. So speaking specifically about ertafitinib, this is an oral FGFR inhibitor. Um, this uh, is approved for second line metastatic urethelial cancer after chemo that has an FGFR alteration, an overall response rate in 32% with a partial response in 30, and there are some complete responses. About 20% of patients in this population will have FGFR mutations. Uh, you can get that on tumor or foundation testing or that sort of um, uh, uh, next generation sequencing. And Fortimab, I've mentioned a couple of times, this is an antibody drug conjugate. Uh, that delivers a cytotoxic drug uh, to cells that express nectin-4. This is a transmembrane cell adhesion molecule. This is expressed in the majority of urethelial cancer patients, 83%. Uh, this is approved in the third line, and there's uh, current studies ongoing looking at a combination of infortimab with pembrolizumab. And then this new trope 2 antibody drug conjugate, as I mentioned, has recently been approved, again, in the heavily pretreated patient population. Speaking very briefly about upper tract disease, it's an uncommon malignancy. We extrapolate a lot of our treatment strategies from the bladder cancer literature, and you can argue whether that's appropriate or not. Uh, it is urethelial in origin, so there isn't uh, any reason to think that it should be dramatically different. Uh, ECOG Akron, uh, led by Jeannie Hoffman, Sensitz, uh, completed a phase two trial of neoadjuvant dose-dense MVAC, similar schema to neoadjuvant prior to cystectomy. They showed uh, a 14% complete response rate after dose-dense MVAC. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, downstaging not to T1 or less of 60%, which we think does have some clinical significance. On the adjuvant side, uh, the POUT trial looked about at adjuvant gemcitabine cisplatin or gemcitabine carboplatin that showed uh, improved disease-free survival. One of the things that we have to keep in mind on the upper tract tumors, perhaps maybe a little bit more urgency to think about neoadjuvant therapy is that by definition, these patients are gonna have less nephrons after surgery, after their nephrorectomy. So they may be chemo-eligible pre-op but chemo ineligible post-op. So there is a real need, and ECOG Akron is opening a, a, a follow-on uh, study looking at uh, dose-dense MVAC in combination with checkpoint inhibition to try to boost this complete response rate. Uh, that'll be coming down the pike soon uh, for the upper tract patients. And with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Lawless. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ed. 
Uh, I am going to get started in one second. Uh, I'm going to uh, complete our talk today talking about uh, renal cell carcinoma. A quick overview and the epidemiology of renal cell carcinoma, about 2 to 3% of all cancer deaths in the U.S. each year. The median age is about, of diagnosis is about 65 and uh, with a median age of death about 70. It does, in, the rate does increase about 2% per year over the past 65 years. 90% of the tumors uh, are renal cell carcinoma, with the vast majority of those being clear cell. Uh, certainly stage drives survival with stage one having a very favorable outlook and stage uh, three and four disease uh, being a lot more dismal. As far as risk factors go, uh, smoking and obesity are two of the uh, possible uh, uh, preventable risk factors. And then there is hereditary type renal cell carcinoma syndrome, such as von Hippel-Lindau disease. Uh, at this point, surgical resection remains the only effective therapy for uh, clinically localized uh, renal cell carcinoma, although there are some ablation techniques, uh, which we will not be getting into today. 2020 kidney cancer statistics uh, for both men and women, uh, kidney and renal pelvis tumors are in the top 10 as far as estimated new cases go. However, uh, a testament to how effectively, especially the early stages can be treated um, they do. They fall out of the list for both men and women uh, when it comes to uh, mortality. The histologies I already mentioned. Uh, there's a clear cell, which is the most common type. Papillary uh, type one and type two are the second most common types, with type two being the more aggressive. Uh, chromophobe renal cell carcinoma is thought to be more indolent, and then we see. Uh, less common and much more lethal uh, variants such as medullary and collecting duct tumors. Um, I will not be speaking of urothelial, upper tract urothelial carcinoma as Ed covered that a little bit in his uh, talk himself. Certainly uh, difficult to judge on imaging. Um, so, uh, but sometimes pathologically we'll see benign tumors five to 10% of the time with the most common types being oncocytoma and angiomyolipoma. Uh, this is what they look like under the microscope. Uh, clear cell has that very classic uh, um, clear cytoplasm pattern uh, with the associated mutations being VHL. And I put the associated mutations for the other types of cancer uh, on this table as well. Uh, again, papillary type 1 and type 2 are the second most common with chromophobe. And I put oncocytoma here. You get a crossover of these in patients with uh, Berthog-Dubé uh, syndrome. Uh, as I mentioned, staging really drives uh, the survival uh, for these patients, uh, and thankfully, most of the patients present with, present with localized tumors, either stage one or stage two, although you can see locally advanced tumors um, and distant metastatic disease. And uh, conventional teaching uh, is that approximately a third of patients who present with renal cell carcinoma actually have metastatic disease at presentation. As we've been taught, um, renal cell carcinoma is dismally responsive uh, to uh, chemotherapy. There have been several trials with uh, several patients uh, looking specifically at this question. 
with an overall response rate of only uh, about 6%. Um, there is some limited data that shows a response in the non-clear cell uh, re metastatic renal cell carcinoma uh, to agents such as carboplatin, cisplatin, uh, plus gemcitabine. So, and I'll go over these actually much later on in our NCCN guidelines. So uh, over the last four decades, uh, although modest, there has been slow uh, improval in survival uh, stage for stage who patients present uh, with renal cell carcinoma. The one-year survival is the blue, blue curve and the five-year survival is the yellow curve. So in this uh, attest to better therapies and better tolerated uh, uh, treatments, especially for uh, advanced and metastatic disease. We've known uh, for a long time that uh, renal cell carcinoma is an immune-rich uh, 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 type of tumor. Some evidence for this includes that uh, there have been anecdotal spontaneous remissions documented in patients who present with large uh, clinically uh, supposed renal cell carcinoma. There is an active abscopal effect in renal cell carcinoma uh, where you see a, a regression of metastases after treatment of the primary tumor. Uh, we see an increased risk of cancer in the immunodeficient states, uh, such as patients who've had uh, transplants and are on immunomodulatory med medications or uh, in patients who have disease states that render them immunodeficient. Also, uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes are uh, richly present uh, in, um, uh, within tumors, particularly clear cell uh, histo histologic subtypes. And there have been uh, many experimental therapies that are targeting uh, these uh, actual tumor cells uh, as a result. So looking at the history of uh, treatment of renal cell carcinoma uh, in the uh, decades uh, going back to the 80s uh, up to the early 2000s, that was uh, considered the cytokine era uh, where there was not really much uh, thought to be available for treatment for patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Uh, the ones that were talked about the, talked about the most were interleukin-2 uh, as well as interferon. And when you go to the uh, NCC and guidelines from this time period, uh, it's actually quite simple, uh, even though it's a busy looking slide, because really what was recommended was uh, IL-2 and interferon. Uh, and that was what was in the armamentarium at that time. However, um, starting in the early 2000s and extending up into uh, our, the decade that we're in, that we just left right now, so about 2015, 2016, that was the advent of the targeted uh, therapy era. Uh, and there were many agents that were approved uh, in that era. And really, the targeted era was based on the discovery of the role of the VHL gene, von Hippel-Lindau gene, uh, in the development uh, and aggressiveness of renal cell carcinoma. And it's been shown that inactivation of the VHL tumor suppressor protein uh, uh, in turn leads to accumulation of a HIF transcription factor, uh, which in itself leads to overexpression of a number of genes, uh, which include VEGF, uh, which drive the aggressiveness of, of renal cell carcinoma. 
and the importance of VEGF uh, in the aggressiveness of renal cell carcinoma and its effect upon survival is demonstrated in this slide uh, with VEGF positive tumors uh, having a much poorer uh, survival rate uh, than VEGF negative tumors. And this uh, was elucidated back in the uh, early 2000s. So as a result of knowing this uh, information, there were uh, several studies that elucidated the pathways of uh, some of the um, VEGF and uh, growth factor related um, factors uh, and their uh, role in the development of aggression uh, of aggressiveness in renal cell carcinoma. And uh, as a result, there were multiple medications that were developed to target these factors um, and block them uh, before they were able to uh, wreak havoc uh, on um, the actual tumor. So on the left here, uh, so the left panel, I show uh, FGFR, VEGF, PDFR, as well as Axel and CMET. And then going over to the right, I'll talk about immune checkpoint inhibitors a little bit later, but the mTOR pathway was also uh, elucidated with its own set of medications uh, serving to block that as well. So, and this was the targeted era of uh, treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma, really demonstrated well in this uh, slide. So uh, one of the first studies to uh, look at uh, the uh, benefit of the targeted agents was looking at sunitinib. It was compared against interferon. Uh, this was a randomized uh, trial that was uh, published back in 2007. Um, and uh, you can see the curves uh, as far as progression-free survival went. Uh, what heavily favored a sunitinib with a 31% response uh, versus a, a fairly poor response uh, in the interferon uh, population. However, uh, although the response rate was much uh, in favor of sunitinib, uh, as far as the uh, side effects, that was, all, that was however much in favor of interferon, as it was discovered that many of the targeted agents, particularly uh, sunitinib, uh, was very, very uh, difficult to actually tolerate with several grade three and grade four um, uh, uh, side effects actually uh, being present. And this is a uh, slide of um, the dreaded hand-foot syndrome, which uh, is, is just as painful as it actually looks and certainly miserable uh, when these patients would actually develop it and it was very uh, difficult to actually treat. So uh, in the same uh, New England Journal uh, where the Sunitinib uh, article was published, so was published uh, an article looking at serafinib uh, for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. This was the target trial, also using progression-free survival as its primary endpoint. Uh, this was randomized, uh, not uh, the sunitinib was actually randomized to um, uh, interferon. Serafinib was randomized to placebo, but also showed a significant uh, benefit um, uh, in progression-free survival as compared to uh, placebo. And these, this led to uh, approval for the, of these medications uh, for treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Now, the interesting thing about the serafinib trial was that it was a crossover trial. So those patients who did not respond, uh, who were placebo, were uh, unrandomized uh, were, uh, and actually re-randomized to receive uh, serafinib or placebo. And again, um, those patients uh, 
showed who uh, had been given placebo and actually uh, had uh, progressed after being given serafinib showed a uh, clinical benefit uh, as far as survival goes uh, when compared to the patients who remained uh, on placebo after a second randomization. And it was uh, trials like those where uh, brought in the advent of the targeted uh, therapy, therapy uh, era, as I've already mentioned, with a number of medications having been approved based on uh, randomization trials, both phase two uh, and phase three that I've listed here uh, on this study. And um, as a result, many of these agents were approved both for first and second line treatment uh, for patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. However, uh, most of the targeted therapy agents, and I'll talk about this later, uh, were randomized uh, against uh, interferon alpha. And as I've mentioned already, the response rate of interferon alpha was just so poor that it was hard to believe that uh, these agents, which had a uh, more of a target, uh, were going to respond uh, poorly compared to this uh, actual comparator. So one thing that uh, actually uh, was um, I think significant uh, at the time was uh, looking at, again, the side effect profile of uh, the um, targeted agents. Again, sunitinib being the one that I showed uh, earlier. Pazopinib was developed uh, in order to uh, compare with uh, the other targeted agents, um, not only as far as efficacy goes, but also as far as tolerability goes. And this was a phase three trial called the COMPARES study, looking at first-line pazopinib uh, compared against sunitinib as a non-inferiority study. Um, so patients had advanced or metastatic renal, uh, clear cell renal cell carcinoma. Uh, they did not have prior treatments. Again, it was a first-line study. They had measurable disease with a decent uh, uh, performance status starting out. Again, they were randomized to either pazopinib or sunitinib uh, with the primary endpoint being progressive-free survival and the secondary endpoints shown below. And they actually hit um, their primary endpoint, which was non-inferiority from, uh, from a progression-free uh, survival standpoint. You can see the curves really well overlap each other uh, all the way down for progression-free survival. And then estimated uh, survival, again, the curves overlap each other, which shows a clear um, uh, non-inferiority of pazopinib to sunitinib, which is what the uh, investigators were actually looking for. However, I think that the proof uh, of the benefit of this trial was really uh, looking at the, a, the adverse events uh, uh, shown in this forest plot, where the vast majority of the patients uh, who received pazopinib uh, actually tolerated it much better than sunitinib. And as a result, uh, pazopinib was uh, thought to be one of the medications of choice in first line for patients who presented with clear cell renal cell carcinoma simply because of the actual tolerability. Again, talking about the targeted era, these uh, were eventually the drugs that were approved by the FDA for uh, renal cell carcinoma. Again, the targeted agents looking at a variety of targets, uh, including the uh, Timsterolimus and Everolimus uh, mTOR um, pathway uh, targeted agents. So uh, not to be Elizabethan about it, but we do believe that we are now entering what we think could be the golden age of metastatic renal cell carcinoma care. Uh, 
uh, starting in 2015 after the targeted era, uh, targeted agent era, which was thought to be the modern age. And of course, um, although I'm sure that some of the older members of the audience uh, would agree, uh, the dark ages were thought to be um, the, uh, the earlier uh, IL-2 and interferon era. So what does the golden age involve? I've mentioned most of the medications here. This was a slide that was developed in 2020. So actually we will be adding on to that uh, as I go through my talk. So cabozatinib um, actually, believe it or not, is another targeted agent, but it's been brought into the um, golden age uh, simply because of the number of targets it actually goes after. And um, it includes, uh, uh, targeting not only VEGF, which is angiogenesis, but also MET and Axel, which upregulation are also associated with a poor prognosis in patients with renal cell carcinoma. Uh, the Cabasun trial uh, looked at cabazatinib versus sunitinib in patients who were uh, IMDC uh, rated or classified as poor or intermediate risk, and this was a phase two study patients were uh, randomized to receive cabozatinib or sunitinib. Uh, and again, they have been classified as intermediate to poor risk uh, based on their IMDC uh, classification. The primary endpoint of this was progression-free survival with a secondary endpoint being overall survival. And they, again, this primary endpoint is something that we've seen in a lot of the other targeted uh, era um, uh, studies that I've already shown. Uh, and what ended up happening was uh, cabozatinib certainly outperformed sunitinib in this uh, particular uh, patient population with a median progressive survival of 8.2 over uh, sunitinib, sunitinib's 5.6 months. The rates of uh, adverse events were actually very similar between the two. Again, they're both uh, considered targeted agents. Uh, and this was believed, again, as, as opposed to the pazopinib trial, this was the first study to show an agent which demonstrated uh, superiorities to sunitinib. Again, it was a targeted agent uh, versus a targeted agent. And at the time, cabozatinib was approved for first-line uh, treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma, um, particularly in patients who were IMDC classified as intermediate uh, or poor risk. And then came the checkpoint inhibitors. Um, this was published in uh, 2015. It looked at nivolumab, uh, comparing it to everolimus in patients with advanced uh, renal cell carcinoma. Uh, this is uh, in patients who had been pretreated, so it's second line and beyond. Um, most of these patients had received already one of the um, uh, targeted agents, and now they were going on to receive a second targeted agent, although probably a different pathway, and they were randomized one-to-one. Uh, -one. Showing the curves here, nivolumab uh, did outperform uh, everolimus with a, uh, uh, a hazard ratio of 0.57. And I think even more significant was the fact that uh, it was much better tolerated than the everolimus. Again, now you're comparing the immuno-oncologic agents versus the uh, targeted agents, and you saw a 19% grade three or four uh, treatment-related adverse events in the nivolumab uh, population versus 37% in the Everolimus population. And uh, then this was uh, a article uh, looking specifically at combined uh, PDL1 or PD1 as, as well as anti-CTLA4, so two different immuno-oncologic agents, nivolumab plus ipilimumab, 
uh, again, comparing it to sunitinib uh, in patients who also had intermediate or poor risk disease. Uh, again, patients were randomized one-to-one. Uh, -one. And the 18-month overall survival uh, going on, and I think something that's significant here is that overall survival was one of the primary endpoints along with progression-free survival. And you saw that uh, patients uh, who uh, were treated with uh, uh, Nevo-Ipi certainly outperformed sunitinib uh, uh, both for overall survival as well as progression-free survival. The overall response rate was 42% uh, uh, in the combined uh, immuno-oncologic arm versus just 27% in the sutant arm. And I think even more significant was the fact that there were 10% uh, complete responders in the combined immuno-oncologic arm uh, versus uh, just 1% uh, in the sutant arm. And uh, again, looking at the adverse events, something that I've driven home already today, the agents are different. So you saw a, a lot less uh, grade three and grade four adverse events in patients who received the combination of uh, checkpoint inhibitors uh, versus uh, patients who received uh, the targeted agents. Uh, also the discontinuation uh, as a result of the uh, therapies favored the uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors because uh, of the uh, tolerability question. And that was a result of this study that uh, again, these were first-line patients, so patients who, are not, who had not been pretreated, that ipinevo was approved uh, for first-line, in this case, intermediate to poor risk of metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And the one thing about this trial is that when you look at the IMDC classification uh, of these patients, uh, even though the immuno-oncologic combination therapy uh, outperformed uh, SUTENT with regard to the intermediate and poor risk patients, really with the favorable risk IMDC patients, SUTENT still actually showed benefit. So the combination therapy uh, did not cover all IMDC classes as a result. However, stay tuned. So uh, just one word on IMDC, uh, this is uh, how it's calculated. Um, and one thing that I'd like to point out, uh, which I do uh, talk to all of my uh, trainees about as well, is that uh, when looking at all the criteria used to uh, risk stratify patients with regard to the IMDC uh, uh, category system, about 80% of them who are being selected for first-line treatment for metastatic renal cell carcinoma are already being classified as intermediate or poor risk. So the vast majority of the patients who are coming in with metastatic renal cell carcinoma who are untreated uh, are going to be considered intermediate or poor risk. So at least by uh, the study that I just showed you, they're going to uh, be favor they're favorably treated uh, or more favorably treated with the combination immuno-oncologic agents. Now, uh, so we have two classes of medications. We have the targeted agents, we have the immunotherapies, and um, there was a lot of uh, excitement about what the uh, thought of was when you combined uh, the actual two of these. Uh, so, and there have been some studies that have just been reported out uh, on these combination trials, which have been very favorable, uh, which I'll show right now. Uh, this was one of the first ones uh, published in 2019. Uh, with Brian Rennie as the uh, lead, lead investigator, uh, Pembro plus Axie 
again, versus the comparator of sunitinib for patients with advanced uh, renal cell carcinoma. Uh, this was uh, as primary treatment, so uh, untreated patients before patients were randomized for the combination therapy versus single agent uh, targeted uh, therapy with their primary endpoints, again, being overall survival and progression-free survival and the intention to treat uh, population. And here are uh, the actual curves. Um, so you saw a significant advantage of uh, Pembroaxi versus sunitinib uh, in this patient population. And I think even more significant is that um, this was uh, achieved across all IMDC risk groups, regard and regardless of PDL1 expression. Um, one thing that uh, I think Ed touched on is that uh, occasionally, in patients who have increased PDL1 expression, we see a benefit in treatment with uh, the checkpoint inhibitors, especially the PD1, PDL1 checkpoint inhibitors. Um, however, uh, this benefit uh, in, this, in this particular study for patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma was demonstrated across IMDC groups and across PDL1 expression groups. However, the adverse events, again, now you do have a targeted agent, which is the exitinib combined with the immuno-oncologic agent. So um, you are seeing uh, adverse events uh, that are uh, similar uh, in the two, although, um, uh, and actually in this particular study, it was a little bit more in the combination therapy uh, as opposed to the uh, single agent uh, targeted uh, therapy group. And again, I think that's because now you're adding another targeted agent in addition to the immuno-oncologic agent. So you're seeing an increase in the actual adverse events. However, uh, because of this study, the FDA did approve Pembroaxi for first-line treatment, advanced renal cell carcinoma. And then uh, again, this was across all IMDC uh, risk groups. Published in the same uh, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, uh, issue as the prior study was this study with Dr. Mozer as the lead investigator, Avelumab plus Exitinib, so Avelumab and Axi, again, again against Sunitinib for patients with advanced renal cell carcinoma. However, uh, this uh, particular study looked at patients, uh, in particular pdl one positive patients. So uh, their primary endpoint looked for overall survival and progression-free survival. Uh, with the biologic uh, stratifier of PDL1 positivity. Um, again, the patients were randomized one to one, and these were uh, un untreated, uh, so first line patients. Again, you saw a, uh, in the patients with PDL1 positive tumors, you saw a uh, benefit with the combination therapy over the single agent targeted therapy um, with regard to progression free survival. Um, and then that was with. Uh, that was actually held uh, with regard uh, to the overall population. So the second curve down at the bottom here uh, is patients who were um, both PDL1 uh, positive and uh, ones who did not have significant PDL1 staining. Uh, looking at uh, the actual uh, adverse events, um, it actually uh, favored uh, the combination study. Uh, or the combination regimen as, a, as uh, compared to the uh, prior uh, uh, study that I showed, uh, SUTENT actually did not show a benefit in any uh, of the uh, populations that were actually looked at uh, with regard to um, actual um, adverse events.
And again, it was because of uh, the study that the FDA uh, went to approve the uh, combination regimen of velumab and Xitinib for first-line advanced renal cell carcinoma, and that approval uh, was done in May of 2019. Uh, this was a final uh, study looking at a combination of tezolizumab plus bevacizumab, which is again along the mTOR pathway, again comparing to sunitinib. Uh, this was reported out at ASCO back in 2018. Um, this was the Emotion 151 trial and looking again at the PDL1 uh, positive patients. Unfortunately, when this was reported out, the, uh, in the intention to treat uh, population, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the endpoints had uh, unfortunately not been reached, although in the PDL1 positive uh, uh, population, uh, at least at some point, uh, they had been reached but it was a result of the fact that it had not been reached that Brian Rennie uh, did uh, in 2019 when he uh, presented uh, this updated uh, data at ASCO, uh, believe that atezolizumab plus bevacizumab uh, was not ready for prime time and really long -term, longer term follow-up was going to be necessary to establish whether survival benefit uh, will emerge and it was uh, not FDA approved uh, as a result. Uh, this is the uh, new kid on the block study uh, looking at uh, nivolumab plus cabozatinib. Again, I showed cabozatinib earlier as a, as a multi-faceted uh, targeted agent uh, in the golden era of the uh, treatment for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. So one of the more advanced targeted agents combined with one of the immuno-oncologic agents uh, looking at it compared again to sunitinib. Uh, for patients with advanced uh, renal cell carcinoma. This was a phase three trial. It was the CHECKMATE trial. Again, just reported out patients were randomized one-to-one -one, and these patients had not been uh, prior treated. The primary endpoint for this study, uh, like other um, targeted agent studies, was progression-free survival with the secondary endpoints being uh, overall survival as far as uh, safety. And here were the uh, actual uh, curves, significant uh, uh, improve uh, significant advantage of uh, the combination immuno-oncologic and targeted agent um, regimen versus uh, sunitinib uh, for both uh, progression-free as well as uh, overall survival with an objective response rate and almost 60% uh, of the patients receiving the combination therapy and just 30% in patients uh, who re receive sunitinib. Looking at the adverse events, it was higher uh, in the uh, combination therapy, um, but again, cabozatinib was very difficult to tolerate, um, but still uh, the, the numbers uh, were actually very close to the single agent, so not as well poorly tolerated. What I've uh, shown over here in our forest plots uh, are the uh, subgroup analysis of the progression-free and uh, overall survivals. And again, looking across all IMDC groups, and regardless of PDL1 expression, you saw a, uh, an advantage of the combination therapy uh, over uh, SUTENT. So in uh, January of this year, the FDA uh, subsequently approved the combination of uh, NEVO plus cabozatinib as first-line treatment uh, for patients with uh, advanced renal cell carcinoma. And again, this was across uh, all IMDC risk groups. So where are we in February of 2021? Uh, NCC and guidelines for treatment of uh, advanced uh, renal cell and metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Again, this is split up by IMDC group with the favorable group up here and the poor and intermediate down here. 
they still have Sutent uh, in the favorable group as a preferred regimen, but uh, and as well as pazopinib, and I showed you that trial earlier. However, some of these combination regimens have now snuck their way in, uh, such as uh, Axi and Pembro and cabazatinib plus uh, nivolumab. Um, in the poor and intermediate risk group, um, the Ipinevo, uh, which I showed that uh, study earlier, as well as Axi Pembro uh, and the cabazatinib and nivolumab uh, regimen are now uh, considered uh, preferred regimens or just cabazatinib as a uh, single agent. These are uh, going to be uh, second line uh, down here, second line and beyond. And then unfortunately, that was really for all clear cell histology. For the non-clear cell histology, we are uh, looking at really preferred regimens of sunitinib uh, as a monotherapy and uh, certainly the uh, clinical trial uh, route. One thing that I'd like to drive home uh, is that for all of these, um, the comparator was sunitinib, and we still have a lack of head-to-head -head com uh, comparisons of the immuno-oncologic uh, regimens or the combination immuno-oncologic targeted therapy regimens. I'd like to spend a little bit of time on adjuvant therapy in renal cell carcinoma. Um, a, a little bit of time I think is appropriate because there's been really nothing uh, to this point that's been shown to be of any benefit, although there are some very promising uh, trials that are currently out and unreported. Uh, in this slide, red is bad, um, yellow is kind of bad, and white uh, at the time of this slide was unreported, although really should be red. And these were all uh, targeted uh, therapies. Uh, Assure, uh, S-Track, which was a little bit controversial uh, and conflicting in its actual results, but didn't really wasn't really thought to uh, change many practice patterns, and certainly the Everest uh, trial, which was looking at Everolimus, uh, turned out to be a negative trial as well. Again, these were all targeted agents uh, in the adjuvant setting. However, there are some uh, agents uh, that are, uh, or there are some studies that are looking at the immuno-oncologic agents, Prospera being the one that is, uh, we just tried at our own institution to um, open it. Uh, however, because it's enrolling so well, it's thought to uh, it's it's going to thought to clo be closed uh, actually sooner than projected. So as a result, we didn't even actually open it. So, and a lot of uh, investigators and clinicians are looking forward to uh, the reporting out of the Prosper trial as some as well as some of the other trials that I've shown here. One thing that was changed uh, with the PROSPER trial is that it used to require a biopsy upfront. However, now uh, when patients are randomized, they're being randomized to re requiring a biopsy and not requiring a biopsy, then going to registration and getting perioperative nivolumab, that's the medication looked for in the PROSPER trial, or going to a partial radical and then going to, uh, straight to observation without the administration of any type of adjuvant therapy. And again, we're all looking forward to uh, this being reported out and it should be closing, uh, I believe, uh, at the end of this year. So right now, in summary, uh, the standard of care for adjuvant therapy does remain observation and surveillance. Uh, there are, are ongoing immunotherapy trials, uh, which I've already mentioned, uh, that are, are going to be reported out and we anxiously await those uh, results. A word, a word on metastatic disease and cytoreductive uh, nephrectomy. Um, 
It's uh, defined as removing the kidney in the face of metastatic disease. It was thought to be traditional dogma for patients who had this. Like I mentioned earlier, as far as the immunogenicity of renal cell carcinoma, spontaneous regression, the abscopal effect has been actually reported. Um, and a lot of this was based on uh, this uh, study here, or these two trials here, an, ERT, an EORTC and a SWOG trial back in the early 2000s that were combined and reported out together with Dr. Flanagan being the lead author. Uh, and again, this was back in 2004. And patients, uh, it was shown who were upfront treated with cytoreductive nephrectomy versus patients who were treated uh, without nephrectomy and with just systemic therapy alone, there was a survival advantage for patients who received cytoreductive nephrectomy. And this study drove the conventional thinking for a number of years that these patients who showed up with metastatic disease should get a cytoreductive nephrectomy prior to being placed on systemic therapy. However, um, one thing that should be noted when looking at this study is that nearly all the patients who received a cytoreductive nephrectomy and patients who did not, for that matter, did receive systemic therapy. And I think that this point really needs to be driven home. So uh, the role of cytoreductive nephrectomy was looked at uh, afterward uh, with regard to uh, some of the um, targeted agents. The thought was that we, it followed that conventional wisdom that cytoreductive nephrectomy was beneficial. However, these were retrospective comparisons. And in fact, there were studies percolating on throughout all this that demonstrated that in cytoreductive nephrectomy, especially in patients who were really, really poor risk candidates, we actually may be hurting patients more than we're actually helping them because many of those patients did not go on to receive systemic therapy and actually ended up dying from disease even before they could get to systemic therapy. So you weren't really even doing a cytoreductive nephrectomy, you were doing a palliative nephrectomy and these patients would go on to die afterward. Uh, and uh, that's really borne out uh, in this actual table. Again, poor risk pre preceding surgery, their survival was much worse than if the patients uh, were uh, of good risk uh, prior to surgery. Um, so the thought was, were we, should we select out the patients who received cytoreductive nephrectomy? And that certainly did, uh, 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 was borne out uh, in the literature very recently in two separate styles. This is the Carmina trial looking at patients who were randomized uh, to received a uh, nephrectomy uh, plus sunitinib versus the sunitinib alone group. And this was a prospective comparison and did show uh, benefit uh, in the sunitinib alone group as opposed to the uh, nephrectomy, cytoreductive nephrectomy, and then going to, to the sunitinib group. And it should be noted that, again, almost 20% of the patients who underwent cytoreductive nephrectomy never received systemic therapy because they were too sick to get to that point. So again, the thought is, are we select, should we select out those patients who we think would most benefit uh, from a cytoreductive nephrectomy? And I think that the uh, SIRTIME trial was much better uh, uh, designed. Uh, this really compared as opposed to uh, cytoreductive nephrectomy versus a, uh, uh, nephrectomy with sutent, just looking straight at uh, sunitinib uh, versus uh, patients 
uh, who got a deferred cytoreductive nephrectomy. So again, these patients received sutent upfront. The patients who responded got a deferred cytoreductive nephrectomy, and it showed that those patients who had a deferred cytoreductive nephrectomy versus an immediate cytoreductive nephrectomy actually uh, had a survival benefit. So what do we? What are the take homes uh, from these trials? Cytoreductive nephrectomy really only improves survival if systemic therapy is delivered. Not all patients who undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy receive systemic therapy, and actually not all patients who undergo a cytoreductive nephrectomy require systemic therapy. So we need to be much more careful about the patients we select for cytoreductive nephrectomy. Patients who progress on systemic therapy upfront may not be the best patients to undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy. Maybe those patients should be the ones that go on to a secondary, a second line or a third line treatment for a metastatic disease versus those patients who respond who maybe should go on to cytoreductive nephrectomy at that point. As far as the role of the APN, uh, the PA uh, in renal cell carcinoma, really follow-up of scans and labs, uh, I think are uh, necessary. So, so thank you for joining us for chemotherapy and immunotherapy for the urologist and advanced practice provider, which is presented by the AUA. Again, I'd like to thank the AUA for allowing us to present uh, our, uh, our course uh, in virtual format as part of the kickoff weekend uh, for the AUA 2021. And I'd especially like to thank my uh, colleagues and co-presenters, Drs. Calvaresi and Trabalsi for another fine year.